I can't stand still. So we got to have this thing move just a little bit. And I'll try not to trip over if I do. we got a couple nurses in the room. Uh, put a tourniquet on it and everything will be just fine. No, I really appreciate uh, everyone coming out again. Again, pretty good-sized crowd considering Sunday night. So I really appreciate it. really appreciate, again, all the effort that everybody made uh, yesterday. And can't say that enough. And, you know, I've been getting a lot of praise for this, which is a little bit crazy because without a team effort, it doesn't get accomplished. Jeremy had the idea of walking out of here one day, brought it up, men liked it. And then we had to get the work done. And then you got all the logistics that happen here. You got the chairs that have to be put out. You got the song books that have to be put out. The PA system has to be done. And James basically took that on himself. Michael gave the PA system. Uh, and it's just everybody got together to work. Uh, and really appreciate all the effort and the people carrying the chairs in, people carrying the chairs out. Uh, just a lot of effort and a lot of work. And I just really appreciate it, as I'm sure everyone that has put in time really has. So thanks again uh, for making this a success. So as I was thinking about what we would talk about out here underneath the tent, something that I don't think we've ever done before, I wanted to talk about And one of the things I thought is, man, well, let's say some random person walks in off the street. They don't know any of you. They don't know me. They don't know anybody. And I say, like, what in the world is this church all about? I began to think about that. When I think about that, what the church talk about? Usually, I go to the book of Ephesians, and I read in the book of Ephesians, especially in the first three chapters, about the church and how glorious the church is, and all of these various things. And I began to think to myself, "There's no way to really describe in 25, 30 minutes, like who the church really is and who we really are." But there was a passage in Ephesians one, and I want you to open up there that was just read for us, of something that I absolutely could not get out of my mind about who we should be. And the truth is that if we are going to be a church, it's really a group of individuals. And it really starts with individuals and their characteristics. Individuals and their way of life. And this phrase jumped out of me down in verse 22 where it is said that God put all things under His feet, and that would be the feet of Jesus, and gave Him head over all things to the church. Jesus being the head of the church, the church being His body. And here we go, verse 23. Which is His body? The fullness of Him who fills all in all. And this phrase, who fills all, has filled my mind for the last week plus. Because when you think of people being full or of something, or filled with something, we usually think of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But I don't use that phrase very often. I use the phrase, someone is full of it. More often than I use the phrase, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Or they are full of themselves. And what's, what do we mean when we say stuff like that? We mean that's what that person is all about. And this idea is that the church are people who want to be filled and who are filled with Christ. 
Why don't you go to chapter 4 here in the book of Ephesians? That way that we know for sure that we are talking about Christ, you would see this in verse 10. A statement is made in verse 9 about the one who ascended. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who descended is the one who ascended from above all the heavens. And it's a lot of way of saying, the person that came down went back up. And we know that to be Jesus. So then notice the last phrase. That he might fill all things. And so today I want to talk about two groups of two. I want to talk about one negative and one positive. Something you could be filled with, that's a negative. But the opposite of that, which is a positive, something to be filled with. And I want to do that twice with two different things. Does that make sense where we're going? Got no PowerPoint, so you gotta, I'll try to move left and right to, uh, get that correct. You go back to the Old Testament, and there's a character that maybe some of you know. She was a lady who, uh, left her home because of a famine. And they go off into this far country, she and her wife, and apparently her three sons. And her three sons, or two sons, they end up marrying, uh, some people from the land in which they went to for shelter for food in this time of famine. And while they are away, and they're living in this foreign land, husband dies. Two sons die. Woman's left with two idolatrous daughter-in-laws. And woman says, I'm going back home. I've heard that God has visited His people, and so it's now time to go back home. And she goes back home. And she sees everyone. I want you to go to the book of Ruth in Ruth chapter 1. And this woman, the reason why I didn't say her name is because the name that she is given is a name that is very important. It is a name that means pleasant. And she comes back, and you would see down around verse 19, that they come, and the two of them, she remembers she had one daughter-in-law who decided to stay with her, and her name was Ruth. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. She comes back into town and everyone is like, yeah, she's back. But notice what she said. And the women said, is this Naomi, which means pleasant. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She said, I'm not full of anything pleasant. I don't have anything left but bitterness. And notice where she said her bitterness came from. The hand of the Lord. Not only am I bitter, the Lord has done this to me. And guess what? She's not the only person in the Old Testament that blames the Lord for bitterness. In Job chapter 9, in verses 17 and 18, he's saying, I can't even go before God to make an appeal. Because the Lord has thrown a tempest on me and waves on me. And then in verse 18 he says, He has filled me with 
bitterness. Wouldn't you be pretty bitter too if your husband died and your sons died and you didn't have anything? I would be pretty bitter. I wouldn't be walking around with a smile on my face. I wouldn't be walking around saying, hey, everything's great. How you doing? I love it. I'm bitter. How bad does it have to be to have people call you that? Where your nickname becomes bitter. That's someone who is full of bitterness. But the story doesn't end that way, does it? Because Ruth gets treated very kindly by the main by the man Boaz. And they have a child. And I want you to go, if your back's still there, and Ruth, go to the very last chapter in Ruth chapter four. That just as the city was all happy when she came back, the city is so glad for her at the end of the book, when she gets to hold this child And you would see in verse 14, the women said, Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. And He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. And so Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. I wonder what she thought the first time she held that child. Do you think she was still bitter at the Lord? Or is it as it says, she now has nourishment, a nourisher of life. The truth is this. There are very much times when we are filled with bitterness, especially at God. But we got to wait. Because what he's got in store is something that is much better than what we ever thought it could be. This new son is going to be better than seven sons. Because you know who comes from this son? Jesus. That's important. That's huge. This is better. So what's the opposite of that? What's the positive that people are filled with? They're not filled with bitterness but they're filled with joy. And I want you to go to the New Testament in Romans, the 15th chapter. And Paul is speaking to a group of people that is mixed of Jew and Gentile. And they've got some issues, and they need to work together. And the Jews need to realize that God has accepted the Gentiles. And that they've been called, even from the Old Testament, that they would be Christians and that they would praise God for the mercy that He showed them. So it's in Romans The 15th chapter, I want you to read with me verse 13. Paul says, May the God of hope, and you remember Dan talked about that yesterday, hope, expectation, what you're waiting for. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And then we just sing about the sweet peace, the gift of God. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You know what it means to abound? Overflow. Multiply. 
And maybe it reminds us of Psalm 23, My cup runneth over. There are times when we're just too joyous. Whereas we've seen in Isaiah, you just shout for joy. You're just always so grateful because things are going well, because the God of all hope has filled you with joy and you expect nothing but good. And so you are incredibly joyous. You're full of joy. But there are other times where we're full of bitterness. And we've got to wait and trust in that. Don't let any root of bitterness spring up and take root is the idea there in Hebrews chapter 12. Don't let it go. Think, wait, hope in the God of all hope who will fill you with joy. Second thing, second group. And I've debated really how to, how to go about this, so I want you to, to go with me here. I want you to, to stick with me here in verse 14 of Romans chapter 15. Where Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. The people that he's writing to, they're full of knowledge. They're full of goodness. But I want you to go to Romans 1. I want you to see somewhat of an opposite of that. In Romans 1, as he begins the letter, as he begins this book, that we have a people who are not filled with knowledge. We have a people that have chosen to not retain God in their knowledge. And I want you to read verse 28. And he's been talking about homosexuality. Women gave up the natural order and men gave up the natural order. And they committed shameless acts in verse 27. And then in verse 28 it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, or the King James, to retain God in their knowledge. And the word is, they didn't hold on to God in their knowledge. They knew Him, they didn't hold on to Him. They gave him up, so God gave them up to a debased mind or a reprobate mind. A mind that is worthy to be thrown out. It's not worth anything. To do what ought not to be done. And here it is. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy or murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's a long list of folks that are messing up. And why? Because they chose not to hold on to the knowledge of God. And so God let them fill up themselves with whatever they wanted to, and they did. And He does the same thing with you and me. And so notice what it says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that what they are doing is wrong, but yet they don't care. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Not only are they out there doing it, they're making excuses for those that are doing it as well. And don't we know people that are full of excuses? It wasn't my fault. Oh, it's really not that. They just always got something. There's always some reason that they didn't do the right thing. And it's never, I didn't do the right thing. He did it. She did it. They were doing it. So-and-so forced me to do it. Or, oh, I didn't know. No. He says there are people that know. And they choose not to do it. And so what happens when a person decides that's what they're going to do, they fill themselves up with all kinds of wickedness. Stuff that maybe they never intentionally set out to do. But because it no longer matters what God thinks and what God says, they'll do anything and everything that comes along that would be pleasurable to them. Those people are usually filled with what is going on in chapter 2. Hypocrisy. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have... No excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And I think he turns to the spiritual people here, the religious people, maybe specifically to the Jews or maybe just the people who were following. But he's talking, I believe, here to religious people. You're judging these other people out there, these haters of God, these envious, these murderers, these homosexuals. You're out there murdering them and these drunkards. And in passing judgment on them, verse 1, You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You hold a double standard. You say, kids, you don't need to do this, but it's okay that I do this. He says, what you've done is you've condemned yourself in that very same thing. And we know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You practice hypocrisy and you're full of hypocrisy. You know that it's right for God to judge you. Jesus in Matthew 23, as he is grilling the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, He grills them saying, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, those two things go hand in hand. Once you start acting, you keep going with whatever else is out there. It doesn't matter anymore because God is no longer a thought. The only thing that's a thought is that everyone thinks I'm okay. And so what you really are is you're full of yourself. You're full of hypocrisy. And he says, you of all people should know that it is right for God to judge you now. And so he says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, or do you not know, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do it in themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think you're going to get away with it? 
You think you're escaping? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You think because God hasn't done anything to you yet, He's not going to do anything to you? He says, don't you realize that when God is patient with you, when God is merciful to you, He's doing that not approving of what you are doing, but in hopes that you would change what you're doing. But yet we read that as a sign. Well, God hasn't done anything about it yet, so it must be okay. It must be all right. And so he says in verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, Word word of God ain't getting in there anymore. It ain't changing anymore. Notice the language. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Remember when there was the famine down in Egypt in the days of Joseph? What did they do to prepare for the famine seven years in advance? They stored up. What you store are the things you fill yourself with. With, And he says what you are storing and what you are filling yourself up for is the wrath of God. When his, and again he throws it in there, righteous judgment. It's fair. It is right that he does this. And he will, verse 6, render to each one, not the church. And that's why, again, I say it has to go to the individual. He renders each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He'll give eternal life. You seek the right things. You seek glory from Him as opposed to glory from man and acting that hypocrite. You'll receive honor from Him. Because He who humbles Himself will be exalted. Right? All these various things. Who gives His life for my sake, He'll find it. All these things. But for those, verse 8, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but what do they obey unrighteousness there will be wrath and fury and guess what verse 9 it doesn't matter who it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek because verse 11 God shows no partiality people can be really full of unrighteousness and hypocrisy or people can be really full to our positive in Ephesians the third chapter and verse 19 they can be full with the fullness of God saying the prayer in one sense begins in verse 14 And Paul says this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Here's why I'm praying. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I've been trying to think, what in the world is all the fullness of God? It's definitely the opposite of all those things that are full of unrighteousness, right? But think about some of the things that we have that we just know about God. If we were full of these things, how much better we would be. Think about it in chapter 2. Michael even referenced this, I believe, this morning. Go back to chapter 2. Verse 4. God being rich in mercy. What if I was full of mercy to people? I was gentle with them. Or go down now to verse 7. That the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. He's full of grace. So much that you can't even measure how gracious and giving he is. How full would that be? And Jesus has said in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten, who was full of grace and truth. What if that was you? What if that was me? That the more we filled ourselves with Christ, guess who we would become more like? We would become more like Christ. We would become more like the fullness of God. But is God all merciful? And is God only, let me ask that question another way. Is God only merciful? Is God only gracious? No, God is very much severe. You would notice that in the book of Romans. Note the kindness and the severity of God, Romans chapter 11. Because we see that He is righteous in His judgments. And the truth is this, is that sometimes it is very uncomfortable, as Dan said yesterday, to tell good people that they aren't living up to God's standard. And it is hard for me to hear, Wes, you are not living up to God's standard. And you say, don't you dare judge me. And God says, you judge with righteous judgment. Because that's Him. He is judgmental. I hate to use that word, right? But that's not the side He wants to be. He doesn't wish that any should perish, right? He doesn't want that. He wishes that they'd all repent. And so guess what? He's faithful to them. He's merciful to us. He is compassionate to us. But yet I don't usually or I don't always listen. I don't change. And so what I'm doing is I'm filling myself with something else besides His fullness. And what I'm storing up for myself is a day of wrath in which He has righteous judgment on me. And what a life it would be if we were all filled more with the fullness of God.
wouldn't that be a place that people would want to come and worship with? Wouldn't that be a place where people would feel comfortable confessing sins to one another and feel comfortable helping other people deal with the sins and the struggles that they have? It would, because we know that how God deals with us. We know that God wants us to tell Him these things, as we talked about again this morning. Am I ready to hear something like that? Am I going to be compassionate to the person that comes and confesses some egregious, awful unrighteousness? Or am I going to be like, how dare you? Don't you dare walk step through those doors. You aren't worthy to be in here. Maybe there's a truth to that sometimes. I think far too often I'm not as compassionate as God is. Remember, I close with this statement. Something about religious people, especially being holy as God is holy. One of the statements that you hear about people, you're holier than thou, right? And religious people tend to stick their nose up in the air. I go to church on Sunday, Wednesday. I even come to ten meetings on Saturday. And we're, we're all well, we're all good. I read my Bible, I study. And everyone else is like below me. And they are not to my level. And what happens, I think, is we're self-seeking in that. We're so self-involved that I'm so good and everyone else is so bad. And I'm not thinking about it from God's perspective. Wes, are you filling yourself as much as you can with me? Or are you filling yourself with you? Your pleasures, your joys, all those different things. What are you doing? And if we were a people, and if I was a person who cared more about being filled with God... I would make some serious choices and some serious lifestyle changes because I cared more about that. If we each do that, you know, tell them what's going to happen in here, out here, or wherever. God will be glorified and maybe people will just flock because, man, there are people that are full of God. May that be us. Subject to the invitation anyway. Won't you come now? Understand?